for the earth, a rain on high every morning. Thank you. You're lovable and humble. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church, and it's good to have you a part of uh, this service as uh, people continue to come on in. Let me uh, go through a couple of announcements, and then we're going to have the message, and then we're going to uh, have a communion service as we worship the Lord. And we're going to have some, be doing a couple things a little bit different here. Um, if you're visiting for the first time or the second time, I encourage you to stop by the visitor's table. In fact, I don't care how long you've been here. If you don't know much about the church and you want to find out, the visitor's table is the place to do it. So we've got some information there about the church. Uh, we give you a free tape if you'll just kind of register there. And I encourage you to do that out in the gathering area. Read your bulletin to get up on all of the um, activities and information that really kind of holds this whole thing together. A lot of stuff there, and it's important, so I encourage you to look through that. On Wednesday night, we have a time for uh, praying for all the ministries of the church. We believe that nothing of kingdom value happens apart from prayer, and so I encourage you to uh, consider being a part of that. 6.30 here at the church. On Sunday nights, like tonight, we have a Sunday night service, a prayer, praise, and healing service that starts at 6. And uh, it's just a wonderful time where we just wait on the Lord and, and uh, needs get met and healings take place. So I encourage you to uh, consider being a part of that as well. Next Saturday, we ha we're having a Discover Covenant Relationship class. And this is a class that is uh, required if you want to become a covenant partner. So um, if you're interested in becoming a covenant partner and want to take that class, call Becky Pfeiffer. And her number is in the bulletin uh, in order to register for that class. Then a week from today... A week from this service, in fact, we'll have a covenant partner meeting at the end of this, this service. Uh, I will go about an hour or hour and a half. We'll, we'll bribe you with free pizza. And uh, we, we're going to try to make it warm this time instead of the cold cardboard version that we've had in the past at times. So uh, mark that on your calendars. We're going to be discussing some important business there. At this time, if you have uh, pagers or beepers or babies... Please turn them off. If your kid starts acting up, we've got some cry rooms in the back, and you can go back there and stay in with the service. We're going to uh, return. I didn't know we had that. Please silence your... Man, that's just, you guys are getting so good up there. I mean, it's blowing me away. Um, last week, we took a break from the series that we're doing on various myths that characterize the church. We, we felt the need to just have a time where we, we, we just uh, worship the Lord and... Um, and it was great. I mean, it was powerful. I was. I think last week was like one of the times. That was one of the most saturated, God-anointed times of worship we've ever had. You know, and, and uh, praise God. The, the power of God just came down on us. And see, that's what happens when people, when we as a group, are totally focused and sold out on God. Uh, you know, you get blessed individually when you're totally focused and sold out on worshiping God. But we get blessed as a group when we all do it together. And I would encourage us every time we go into worship. Uh, as a corporate whole, to just block out everything else and give God the glory that's due His name. You know, it's just, that, that's when you give God a chance to move in your life. But today I want to return to this series that we're doing on myths that characterize the church. And we're up to myth number seven. I'm thinking there's going to be eight or nine or maybe even ten like I originally anticipated. But the myth I want to talk about today is, is a huge one. Far more pernicious than most of us think probably because a lot of us, at least to some degree, share this myth about the church. And it's the myth that the, that the church is a holy club. 
And the church is a holy club. Now, the church consists of saints. The Bible calls them hagioi. But it's also clear that it calls them saints because of who they are in Christ. And if we understand this right, we'll see that it actually is the opposite of a holy club. What I want to uh, submit this morning is this. The church is called to be not a holy club that casts a sideward glance on people who are different than them, but it should be the community where God's outrageous mercy flows freely. The community in which God's outrageous mercy flows freely. And I'm going to be just bombarding you with a bunch of scripture here, so if you're taking notes, get ready to write fast. But before I do any of that, I want to pray. I need some people over here who will be intercessors for me during the message. Raise your hand. Thank you. Over here, some people who will be intercessors for me during the message. Thank you. Some people over here to be intercessors. Come on, a little bit in the middle there. Get a little bit in the middle, a few, few more. Okay, good. Just cover me in prayer that uh, the word would go forth in a straight way. Let's all pray together. Father, I have just all weekend sensed such a sense of hugeness about this message. Lord, uh, you're really going to confront some things here. I pray, God, that, that uh, this message, Lord, you would use this message, God, to really cause us to have a totally accurate estimation of our own sinfulness. And I pray, God, that that would be used not to shame us, Lord God, but to cause us to have a totally accurate estimation of your grace and your mercy that saves us despite of ourselves. And I pray, God, that you'd use this message then to pull those two things together, to create in us and in this body a people who have only mercy in their eyes as they look at each other and look at the world. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. The church is a holy club. Here's the kind of thing I'm talking about. The person I talked to several weeks ago said this, that they believe that they believe in Jesus, but they never go to church, maybe on Christmas or whatever. And the reason they gave, and I think they're telling the truth here, uh, but it's not for me to judge, but the, the reason they gave was that they don't feel worthy to go to church. It just grieves me to my core of my being. They don't feel worthy to go to church. Uh, they felt that, you know, church is kind of for the people who really have got their life together, but their life is so mixed up that they feel that uh, they just don't belong with that, that sort of people. And so sad because the one thing that could really help this person get out of the mess they're in is putting themselves in a context where they, the word saturates them and empowers them to get out of the mess they're in. But see, we put the cart before the horse, and, and, and so we use the fact that we need the Lord to keep us away from the Lord. It's just a, a sad situation. But look at the presupposition of this lady's mindset. The presupposition there is that the church is sort of this holy club, and if you meet a minimal level of requirement, you're in, but if you don't meet that level, then you're out. And she doesn't want to feel bad about being out, so she just doesn't go. You get this a lot, a lot more than maybe you'd suspect. And the reason that people on the outside of the church have this impression is because a lot of people on the inside of the church have this belief. It's rarely articulated in a real straightforward way, but the the presupposition is there to some degree. Oh, yes, we're not perfect. Oh, yes, God's not finished with us. But at least we don't have those kinds of sins, and we're not like those kinds of people. That idea runs uh, throughout the church. We're not perfect, but, uh, you know... 
There's a little bit of a difference between us and them to the point where we can feel good about, you know, where we are at. And inevitably we look down on people who aren't where we're at. And in the end, there's some degree of self-righteousness in the church. We're not like that. That's why we feel empowered to go after that stuff. You have segments of the church who actually go on campaigns against what those people do when they commit those kinds of, a sin, those kinds of sins. And we feel good about ourselves in doing that. I don't know if there's a greater problem. Uh, I, I, I doubt there's a greater sin on the planet than that one, the sin of self-righteousness. Because there's nothing that more squarely goes in the face of what's real, what's true, nor is there any sin that does more to thwart what God's up to in this world than that particular sin. And yet it has been the sin that has characterized, to a large degree at least, the people of God throughout history. Israel, the main sin they fell into, the most grievous sin they fell into, the sin that Jesus most confronted was the sin of their self-righteousness. God called them by His grace. God changed them by His grace. And then God empowered them to bring the message of who He was to the world. God always was interested in saving the entire world. But the people of Israel, rather than seeing themselves as the humble servants to the world, got prideful in their calling, and they, began, they ended by judging the very world they were called to serve. Totally blocks what God wants to do through them. And to a large degree, I want to submit to you that that is true of the church. It comes to see itself as a holy club. Gee, aren't we special? We are not like those people with those kinds of sins. And to the extent that we have that, we will block what God wants to do through us. God... You know, the, the longer I am a believer, the more I see, the more clearly I see just how radical, radical, radical the gospel is. And how it's so different from what we normally think about things. And how it confronts our, our sort of ordinary, sedate ways of, of thinking about things. See, if we're th seeing things accurately, we would see, and this is what I want to do this morning, see how completely radical, outrageous God's judgment against sin is. And when we see that, we'd be able to see just how radical and how awesome God's mercy is towards sinners. In fact, you can't see the second unless you see the first. But what so often happens is that we sanitize the radicalness of the message to make it fit in more easily with what we're used to thinking. And often we do that in self-serving ways. I want to just really let the Word of God confront us in all of its radicalness about the reality of sin and the reality of God's mercy. And I want to do that in order to uh, really undercut any, any, any temptation that we might have to be self-righteous and be judgmental towards others. Jesus spent a good portion of his ministry confronting self-righteousness. In fact, it's the thing he confronted most aggressively with the most amount of fire. And, and, and the way he did it was by revealing to people what God's will really was so they could really see what sin is. And it's radical. Let's look at a couple of examples. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said of those to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister... You will be liable to the council. That's the same, the, the, the judging tribunal. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. And the word you fool in, in the Hebrew is, or in the Greek, is, 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 it's an unintelligible word, but it's an insult. It's like our word nincompoop. It doesn't mean anything, but everyone knows that you're insulting somebody when you call them that. It was the word raka, raka. You know, uh, 
If you slander somebody, you're in danger of, of uh, hellfire. See, what, what Jesus is doing here is this. He's not saying that socially it's the same whether you murder someone or just angry with them. Socially speaking, socially speaking, it's much better to only be angry with a person rather than murdering them. Okay, so Jesus isn't uh, saying, he's not giving a social prescription here. But what he is doing is this. He's pulling out any room that someone might have to say, at least I don't murder. Oh, yeah, maybe I'm angry sometimes, but at least I don't murder. What he's saying that is that in terms of our standing before God, they're all one and the same. Do you ever insult somebody? Do you ever think about an insult towards somebody? Do you ever say something that's unkind to somebody? You may as well have committed murder. Sin is radical, and God's judgment on sin is radical. And I hope we're all feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery, committed adultery, committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus isn't saying that, socially speaking, it's the same whether you commit adultery or just have lust in your heart. Socially speaking, it's far better just to have lust in your heart than it is to actually act out on and commit adultery. It causes far more damage to act out on adultery than it does just to have lust in your heart. But what Jesus is doing is this. He's saying that in terms of your standing before God, there's absolutely no room to say, at least I don't commit adultery if you've got lust in your heart. Or if you've ever lusted in your heart. From God's perspective, it is one and the same. Sin is sin. Look at this one, Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, that's, he's assuming that's the, sin you're gonna, the hand you're going to use the most, the one that matters the most, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now again, Jesus isn't giving us a new social rule here, like whenever you sin with your right hand, you've got to cut it off. That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is he's intensifying our awareness of the nature of sin. And what he's saying here is this. If you really are going to be perfect in terms of your behavior, it's going to require you to cut off your hand when your hand sins, and to cut out your eyes when your eyes sin, and to cut out your ears when your ears sin, and to cut out your feet when you walk towards sin, and to cut out your mind when you, when you think about sin. In other words, if we're going to stand before God on our own, we're all going to be limbless people. We're going to be handless people, footless people, eyeless people, earless people, mindless people, and neutered people. I wonder how long it takes to get that one. There you go. That's the standard that we're up against. And now, let's not turn this into poetry. Jesus is talking straight here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is in the Old Testament. It used to be that guys could just kick their wives out with, without any kind of due process. Jesus uh, institutes, a, or the, the Lord institutes a due process here to slow, to slow it down to make it more humane for women. And so some people were feeling righteous about the fact that they divorced their wives, but they did the technicality of writing on a certificate. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, and many scholars hold that that was during the betrothal period before they'd ever had sex, but anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman, a divorced woman, commits adultery. Now again, Jesus is not giving a new social prescription here. He's not saying, I'm sick and tired of this Old Testament leniency. We've got to tighten the belt here and, and, and therefore take away the permission that God gave in the Old Testament. He assumes the person's going to get remarried. That's not the issue he's addressing here. The issue he's addressing here is this. 
don't feel self-righteous about the fact that you, that you uh, met some kind of technicality in getting a divorce. All divorce involves a break from God's ideal. And in fact, all divorce involves adultery in just the same, and, and remarriage involves adultery in just the same way that thinking about uh, sex outside of marriage involves adultery. He's not speaking socially, but what he is doing is, 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 is saying this. There's no room for somebody to say, well, at least my divorce wasn't like that divorce. Say, at least I didn't do it the way they did it. In terms of standing before God, Jesus says, What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Look at this one, Matthew chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. The good person brings good tr- things out of, the good tre- uh, good, uh, out of a good treasure. And the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I looked up the word careless there in the original Greek. You know what it means? Careless. I was surprised too. I, I, I thought surely it means, you know, perverted or jaded or something obscene. No, it means careless, frivolous, thoughtless. And what Jesus is saying here is this, if you're going to really be right with God, know this, that every careless word you utter, every frivolous, every, every unholy, even a thoughtless word that you utter, you're going to give an account of the rub on the day of judgment. In fact, since the inside of a person is, is at least as important as the outside of the person, we can apply it to our thoughts. Every thoughtless thought you think, every useless, every careless, every frivolous thought you think, every thought that does not glorify God, you're going to give account of the rub on the day of judgment. And let's take this seriously here. It is like that. I am so far gone, folks, that I don't even know how to begin to apply this to my life. I, I, there was one period in my life where I really tried to pay attention to every word I thought, and every word I spoke and every thought I thought to make sure that it wasn't careless, that it wasn't frivolous, that it served some God-glorifying purpose. And do you know how uptight and miserable you get trying to do that? Now, that, I'm confessing that's because I'm such a sinner. If I wasn't such a sinner, this would come more natural. But you start obsessing about each word. And, you know, should you really have said that? And did that really glorify God? And you know what? The evil you do in terms of your relationships by trying to get holy in this one is worse than the, the evil of, of, of not getting holy in this one. It destroys all your social relationships. You, you're just, you know, there's, there's no love. There's no normal human God-glorifying spontaneity that's going on. And this is a, I'm not saying this isn't a good thing. This is a good thing. It's just that I'm so far gone, I don't even know how to apply it. I know how to live life generally as a thoughtful person and trying to be considerate, but I don't know how to pay attention to every word. All this does is it makes me feel utterly, utterly hopeless. How many useless words, how many careless words have I spoken in the last month, I wonder? Or careless thoughts have I thought? Or how many have I done in the last week? Heck, how many have I done today? How many have I done since I started this sermon? And any one of those sets me apart from God. This is what it means to take sin seriously. Jesus sums it all up in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, here's what I'm talking about. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know that? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ah. Let the anointing flow. See, the standard, the standard is perfection because we're talking about what makes us compatible with God. And it, where, we're, we're st- where the standard is perfection, what we've got to realize is we've got any degree of introspection at all, and if we take Jesus' words seriously at all, is that we are all lost. If we're all goners, we're all toast, we're liable to hellfire. 
See, what religious people often do is they contrive their own system of morality, their own sin list. And, and, and uh, as long as they can avoid the sins on this list and do the do's that are on this list, uh, then they can at least feel good about themselves to this extent. They're, you know, maybe they're not perfect. It takes an incredibly shallow person. And I think a self-deluded person to think that they are perfect. I've met a couple who really think that, you know, I haven't sinned in 13 years. That, 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 oh, but that, that, is, that is a reflect an incredible, uh, uh, mentally and spiritually challenged person who just doesn't, you, you just can't introspect much. Or reflects a person who has devised an arbitrary list of their pet sins that they're going to avoid and their pet do's that they're going to do. And they suck life out of that. And then they can look down at the people who don't meet their arbitrary sin list, and now they can play God and feel, feel good about themselves and, and judge them for that. So, you know, what happens with religious people is we say, well, look, at least, at least I, our, we don't do divorce, and if we do divorce, we don't do it for the reasons, the frivolous reasons that they do. And, and uh, at least we're not, you know, uh, debauched like, like, like they are. And, 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 you know, maybe we're not perfect, but, but at least uh, we're not as greedy as they are, and, and we don't commit adultery like they do, and we don't, you know, sin the way they do, and we're more committed than they are, and we're not gay like they are, and at least we give a little bit of our money like they don't. And we come up with a little sin list here. And it puts us in a position where we feel nice and secure on which we can throw stones at the people who don't meet, meet our sin list. And then us Baptists and, and those kind of things often like that even add to that list, you know, because there's, you get a little more life if you can make it a little more technical, you know. And, and, and the more fine-tuned the system is, the more you feel good about it. So, so we don't dance and, and, and we don't drink either and we don't go to those kind of movies and we don't smoke. And now we really feel good about ourselves. And maybe we could even get on a campaign against the people who do those kind of things. And then, and then we'll really be kind of sucking in the self-righteousness thing here, you know. And the whole religion becomes a, a, a religion of morality which is nothing more than one giant idol out of which you are sucking life to feel good about yourself. And the whole thing's predicated on this, at least I don't, kind of mentality, which is the very thing Jesus spent his ministry undermining. If you want a sin list, let's, let's go for it here. Let, let, let's, let's take Jesus' word seriously. Here's what the list is going to look like. And this is just scratching the surface. If perfection is the criteria, here's the kind of things we've got to include. It includes never saying a careless word. Which then also means never thinking a careless thought. You want to go for it? Go for it. Well, we should be going for it. The question is, do you think you do it? It includes gossip, but not just gossip with your mouth, but gossiping in your heart. Do you, do you run a, a, a commentary, conversation with yourself about another person, kind of gossiping in your head about them? That also would be ruled out. It, it, it would rule out stealing, but not just physical stealing, but stealing in your heart, coveting. Do you ever want to steal? Do you ever wish you could steal? Doggone, I wish I could steal. I could get that. Same thing, exact same thing. It involves not honoring father and mother, but not just honoring them. Uh, it involves making sure that you honor your father and mother, but not just in your words and deeds. We do that on Thanksgiving and Christmas maybe, but do you do it continuously in an unbroken fashion, not just with your words, but in your heart and in, in your mind? It would involve greed, but not, not only just greed, but uh, making sure that you help the poor as much as possible at all times. It would involve... Not just adultery, it would include not just adultery, but lusting in your heart. It would include not just pride, but having pride in your heart. It would include not just murder, but even having any kind of anger in your heart. Towards the Taliban, for example. Not only having anger towards the Taliban, but not saying raka, nincompoop, fool to the Taliban. In fact, let's go all the way. It would involve, it mean, the list would include loving your neighbors, loving your enemies, 
as much as possible at all times in an unbroken fashion. It would include not hurting others, but not just not hurting them, but blessing them as much as possible at all times in an unbroken fashion. It would involve not just not being cruel, but thinking only kind thoughts of them. Never judging them in our minds, running a negative commentary about them in our minds. It would involve not just divorce for the right reasons, but divorce for any reasons, or even wishing to be divorced in your heart. It would involve loving God perfectly in an unbroken fashion with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your body, with all your soul, all the time. The list would specify what it means to, at every moment of your life, be as kind and loving and generous and gracious and and holy as possible, both in your deeds and and, and in your thoughts and in your affections. And I, for one, have got to tell you that I don't do this. And I am lost as if this is the criteria. This should be the aspiration of our heart. This should be what we aim for. But we've got to be aware of the fact that we don't do it. In fact, I'm not even going to sit up and pretend to you that I even try to do a lot of these things. Because I don't. What Jesus does here is He completely takes away any room for saying, at least I don't do that. Because it's all one and the same. You maybe are a super, super religious, righteous person. I honor you for that. And, and uh, you know, you've got it. You, you really do a lot better than the rest of us. But what you've got to know, what you have to know, speaking specifically to the super righteous people here in our midst, you know, your list, if you're going to be honest with God and honest with yourself, is going to have to have 100,000 or more detailed things like the ones I just read to you. And it may be that 99,999 of them you actually do. But if you fall short in one of them ever, you've got to know that you're in the same boat as the rest of us losers. You're lost. And all the losers said amen. Well, we should be clapping because on this account, folks, we are, we are, in fact, all losers. That's why the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. It says this in, 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 uh, in 1 John 1. It says, if anyone says they haven't sinned, they make God a liar, in which case they've got at least two. Romans chapter 3, Paul says this. There is no one. Who is righteous? Not even one. There is no one who has understanding. Not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. Not even one. All have turned aside without exception. Together they have become worthless. They've become worthless. Next to God's righteousness, what we have to confess is that we are worthless. Even our righteous deeds are worthless. I want to speak as frank as, as, as the Bible speaks, and it, it, sometimes it speaks pretty frank. But in Ezekiel it says this, that your righteousness is as filthy rags. The word there actually means in the original Hebrew menstrual rags, and the Jews really had some negative thoughts about that. Now, if that's what your righteousness is like, what does your unrighteousness look like? I don't even want to think about it. I don't even want to think about what our righteousness looks like, according to that metaphor. But There's no one who shows kindness. There's not even one. Now, Paul is talking about what we are apart from Christ, what we are on our own. This is how far short we we fall from the ideal that Jesus gave us. And he sums it all up in Romans 3.23 when he says this, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we, we believe, and I know from experience and I know from the Word of God, that God's at work in you if you allow Him to, and He's changing you, and He's revolutionizing you, and that's wonderful. And, and, and you're not what you used to be. But what's also true is this. If we have any ounce of introspection and take the, the Word of God seriously, we still have to confess that in and of ourselves we are sinners, that we, this applies to us in the present tense, not just in the past tense. 
And so we are in terrible need of God's grace. And see, the thing here is this. The one group of people on the planet who should know this is the church. The one group of people on the planet who should know the reality of sin and the reality of God's holiness and the lostness of the human condition is the church. So the church ought to be the last place on the planet you'd ever find a person who's inclined to be self-righteous. You ought to be able to find more self-righteousness in a prostitute hotel than you find in church. Because in a prostitute hotel, they don't know what the standard is, but we do. It's just so ironic that it so often becomes the opposite. If, if perfection is the standard, then, then we are all lost. And we're gone. So I want to bless you and have a good week. Okay, God bless you guys. I'll see you later on. <laughs> Fortunately, that's not the last word. I'm not quite done yet. See, I'm not done because God wasn't done with us yet. God, God wasn't done with us. Amen. Amen. He didn't give up on us. You would think he would. There's a tremendous problem. He is passionately in love with these people who fall short of his glory with almost every thought that they think. What is he going to do about this? He, he, He hits upon the most incredible solution imaginable. He himself comes into the world and takes upon himself our sin that we might take, upon, that we might take on ourselves his righteousness. So Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. No human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. That's the list I'm talking about. But it's not your list because I'm sure you're justified by your list because that's why you got your list. It's the one that can justify you. I'm talking about God's list and next to God's list, none of us are going to be justified. In fact, from that list simply comes the knowledge of sin. That's what tells us how much in need of mercy we are. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. The righteousness righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God. For there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles on this account, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified, the word there means declared righteous, by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. The reality is this. If, if, we, uh, if we can take... The problem is that we, we are so lost that we don't know how lost we are. Uh, you know, it's, it's a sign of a person who's really sick when they can no longer feel the pain of their sickness. And that's the, the kind of human condition. We feel like we're pretty good Joes. But that's because we, we, we measure ourselves up against our own, a standard of our own creating. Next to the standard of God and the perfection of God, we are lost, we are lost, we are gone, we are toast. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would simply say yes, whoever would simply receive it, receives the gift of eternal life and they will not perish, praise God. God so loved the world. This is His solution. He comes into the world, becomes one of us, enters into the worst that we have got to offer and takes upon Himself the sin and the punishment for sin that we deserve, that we might take upon ourselves the righteousness of God that comes as a gift. It only comes as a gift. There's nothing you can do now that's going to merit it, that's going to earn it, that's going to achieve it. It comes as a gift. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the most beautiful and the most mysterious verse in the entire Bible. For our sake... God made him to be sin, referring to Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, this sinless one. He made him to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That in him we might take on the righteousness of God. The most incredible, most outstanding, most stupendous paradox of the Bible. Don't ask me to explain this one. I can only rejoice over it. The all-holy God 
Creator capital C, Holy capital H. The all-holy Creator becomes a human being and takes upon Himself. He becomes, in the person of Jesus Christ, our sin. He becomes that. And He becomes the punishment for our sin. Why? So that now we may become, in just the same way, His righteousness. The pure, holy, spotless, unimprovable righteousness of God. And it comes to us as a gift. What an incredible, mind-boggling display of unfathomable love and mercy. I don't get it. But there it is right there in the text. God was willing to do that for us. It's a trade. His deal with humanity is simply this. I'll make you a deal. Give me your sin that I've already paid for, and I'll give you my righteousness. And if you say yes, then it applies to you, praise God. And His righteousness comes into your life and begins to change you. Praise God's most baffling, most wonderful, most incredible uh, mystery in the entire world. God's solution to the problem of, of sin. But you know what? what's even more amazing, if, I, if, if, if there is such a thing, is, uh, is, is that the solution, it doesn't just cure the problem. The solution goes beyond curing the problem. The, the solution improves the situation that was there before the problem. Bible says this in Romans chapter 5, that where sin did increase, grace did increase all the more. Man, I, I, I just, I, I, this blows me away. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God oversolved the problem of sin. This is the kind of mercy we're talking about. This is the kind of grace we're talking about. God didn't just shoot to break even in this deal, to put us back to where we was. To, to where we were. Uh, God, rather, when He restores us, he, it's as though He over-restores us. Yes, sin increased. It was all over the place. But grace did much more increase. Sin dominated, but, sin, uh, but grace much more dominates. The sin was great, but the grace is even greater. We fell 10,000 miles down, but He lifted us 100 billion miles up, praise God. Amen? It's like... It's like uh, Amen. It's like He oversaves us, all right? He oversaves us. His mercy is so incredible. He overredeems us. His mercy is so incredible. He overfrees us. He overrejuvenates us. He overfills us. He doesn't just set us to where we were. Praise God. He, he changes our nature. He doesn't just get us free from the condemnation of sin. He, say, he, he changes our heart. He changes our mind. He gives us a new nature. He fills us with the Spirit, and He destines us for eternal life with Him. What a deal. What a God. What a mercy. What a mercy. It's absolutely mind-boggling. The only thing, if there is something that is even more mind-boggling, is how anybody who knows this could now ever strive for self-righteousness and then judge others because they don't meet up to their criteria. You see, the, the, the church is the one body of people who, who understand this. That we are... If, if what I just told you isn't true, I am gone. I am lost. I don't have a hope. But it is true. And if the people who know this, really know this, how can we possibly ever set ourselves up on some kind of pedestal that we're going to now look down on other people by? See, this doesn't mean that we don't strive for, for righteousness. It doesn't, of course, you say, you know, should we sin that grace may abound? Paul asks, no, are you kidding? We, we, uh, this, the, the ideal is the ideal and we strive for it. Because we've got a new nature in Christ Jesus. Sin is no longer our nature. We've got a righteous nature in Christ Jesus. But what's also true is this. We know, don't we? Let's be honest, that all of us every day need God's mercy to keep us in right relationship with Him. So how could we ever judge others? Jesus spent a lot of His ministry, this is the third thing, teaching about judging others. And if we hear this, we'll be the opposite of a, of a, of a holiness club. 
Because the lady was caught in the act of adultery. Remember this? The lady was caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8. And they brought the woman to Jesus. Now, this is already interesting because you've got to ask the question, why did they bring the woman to Jesus? Where was the man? You see, but here, here's what it tells you. Whenever you set up your own system of morality, your own little self-serving sin list, you'll see what you want to see. If they're always arbitrary, they're always self-selective. And so they don't even think about bringing the man to judgment. The woman's going to be brought to judgment because it's the men who have come up with the rules. You see? And I might just say this. In every religion where you have this kind of thinking going on, it's always women who pay more than men. I, I get to see an exception to this. Because it's almost always men who come up with the rules, and the rules are self-serving. They, 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 it's, at least I don't do this sort of a thing, and it's self-serving. So they brought the woman to Jesus, and they said, well, you know, what should we do, Master? They're trying to trip him up. What should we do? The law says stoner. And Jesus stops and he writes something in the sand. And I bet it was something to do with that sin list I just got done talking about. Because then he says this, okay, tell you what, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. All right? Yes, you know what? She deserves it. She really does deserve this. We've got we to crack down on sin. So the one who really doesn't need to be cracked down on, you throw the first stone. Start cracking. And one by one, they all went away. One by one, they all went away. You see, because what Jesus is showing them is that he's asking them, I suppose, have you ever lusted in your heart? Have you ever said a careless word? Uh, do you uh, have any kind of greed in your life? Have you, have you all, are you always concerned about the poor? Do you feel empathetic for the people who are suffering around the world in an unbroken fashion? Are, are you perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect? By all means, throw the stone. She really does deserve this. But if you, that's not true about you, if you're not perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect, you've got to know that that stone's going to ricochet right back on you. And from God's perspective, it's all one and the same. The rock is just as big and comes just as fast, whether we're talking about thinking about lust or actually doing adultery. Socially, they're different, but before God, they are the same. Who wants to throw the first stone? Come on, first takers, and they all go away. Because, see, if we're all on death row, then in face of another person who's on death row, we all got to remain kind of silent because we only stand by, by, by God's mercy. So they all, they all leave him. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge that you may not be judged. If you don't want to be judged, Jesus says don't judge. And, and, and this is just about running a, an internal negative downward uh, thought process about somebody or speaking it. That person, look at me, look at this, look at that. Okay, that's, that's judging. It doesn't mean recognizing right and right is wrong is wrong, but it's about applying it and, and, and thinking down negative towards them on this basis. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment, listen to this, this is so profound, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged. The same thing, the rock's going to ricochet on you. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. It's going to ricochet back on you. You've got to make a decision about your life. It's a very important one. How are you going to live? Are you going to live by standing in Christ Jesus by His grace, or do you want to play, do you want to play the do-it-on-my-own judgment game? You're going to do one of the two. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. If you hold other people up to your uh, judgment game, you yourself are going to be judged by that same judgment. The tribunal you set up in your head about other people is the one that, that you're going to be judged by. The rock you throw towards them is the rock that's going to be thrown back at you. Same size, same force. And now remember the sin list. Before you throw that first stone, before you cast that judgment, do you really want to pick up that stone and throw it? What Jesus is saying here is basically this. If you're going to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, which was forbidden from the start, you're going to die by the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Do you really want to go there? Matthew chapter 7. This one is just so incredible. Verses 3 through 5. Jesus says this. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, 
but do not notice the log in your own eye. How can you see? How can you say to your neighbor, "Let me take the speck out of your eye," while the log is in your own eye? How do you even see their speck since you're full of logs? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Jesus is saying two things here. I think. Number one, it's really hard to notice a, a little grain of wood in someone else's eye when you've got two two by four sticking out of your own eyes, isn't it? And that's the image he's creating. Usually, see, what happens is we see two-by-fours in other people because they're in our own eye. Look at those two-by-fours in, in that person. It's kind of like accusing somebody else of smelling like onions when you just, you know, bit into an onion and you got onion juice on your nose. You know, we, this is what the psychologists call projection. We project our own logs onto other people, and that's why they look like logs. So Jesus is saying the judgment you give is going to come right back onto you. Paul says in Romans 2, verse 1, that, uh, that the judgment you, you make is the judgment you're going to receive because you're, you're guilty of the very same things. First thing he says this is you can't find, see specks in other people's eyes when you've got logs in your own eyes. But secondly, he's saying this. Our attitude towards other people's sin should be to us specks compared to the logs that we know that we have in our own life. We all fall infinitely short, and so when it comes to the evaluation game, we should consider their sin to be specks and our own sin to be logs. Now, normally we like to reverse this. This is what self-righteousness is based on, reversing this process, doing the opposite of what Jesus teaches here. The only way you can get self-righteous is by doing this. Oh, maybe I've got a little splinter in my eye, but look at those logs. Now, look at that person's log. You know, it may be that I haven't prayed enough this week. You know, okay, yeah, but, you know, we're all human. But I'm not mean and nasty and vile like that person is. Well, look at that log, you see, compared to my speck. What Jesus is saying is, you know what, reverse time. How can you even notice the speck that they are coarse and, and maybe vile when you've got a two-by-four, the fact that you haven't prayed all week, and you've probably been thinking a lot of useless thoughts, and maybe you've had lust there, and maybe you haven't been as kind as possible there, and you've got a whole lot of logs there. Reverse the process. The one you need to think about is how you stand. The thing you've got to think about is how do you stand before God. And if you're really infinitely intense on that one, you're not going to have a lot of time to go around picking out little splinters in other people's eyes. See, with Jesus' mindset, it ought to be something like this. Yes, you know what? Maybe the person you're looking at right now is greedy. They hoard everything, man. They just pile up riches for themselves, and they don't care about starving people. Bad, really bad. That's true. But that ought to be to you a a speck compared to the fact that right now you're coveting what they've got. That's the log you need to worry about. And maybe that they're obese and they overeat, and, you know, you've worked so hard at being so thin and trim and all that kind of stuff. But that ought to be to you a speck, a little speck that's insignificant that you really can't be sure that you even see because you don't know anything about this person's life now, do you? That's why it's very dangerous to go finding specks. You don't know much of the story. But besides, even beyond that, compared to the log of jealousy that you've got in your life or compared to the log of judgmentalism that you've got in your life, you really have no business trying to take out their speck. It may be the fact that this person really is coarse and, and, and is vile, but, but, but compare, and cut you off on the road, but compared to the fact that, that you don't love God as much as you possibly could, that is a speck to you. The log you need to worry about is, is the love of God that, that you don't have in your life, and the fact that right now, instead of blessing these people who cut you off, you're cursing them, all right? Time to start paying attention to logs. It may be that they are gay, but the fact that you've got lust in your life makes that the log you need to concern with before you start picking out their, the, 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 the speck in, in their life. It may be that a person you're looking at is not committed and they don't care about church and they don't give any money to the church and they don't do anything to help the kingdom of God. 
But that ought to be to you a speck. To God, God will take care of that. But to you, that should be a speck compared to the log that you yourself aren't as committed as possible. And you have got jealousy and maybe lust and maybe pride and maybe self-righteousness in your life. First, take out the log before you can go looking for the speck. And all of this is to say, Jesus isn't saying, okay, we're going to break it down into a process here. First do this and then do this. What he's saying is you're never going to get around to doing this because you always have logs that you're dealing with. The only one who can go looking for specks in people's eye is God. And that's what the Bible explicitly says. James chapter 4, to give one of the examples. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy so who then are you to judge your neighbor? God alone can do that. It's between a, a person and God. Now I can just hear someone in the auditorium. I'm listening to you. I hear you thinking this thought. Whoa, going light on sin, aren't we? We need to get tough on sin. We need to bash the sin down. You know, and you're moving towards moral relativism. You're getting soft. You're getting liberal. I can just hear people saying that. But see, I, I want you to open up your mind here and think for a second because I want to show you what's really going on here. What's really going on here is that maybe one of the things I just mentioned now uh, that was on your pet sin list that's there to make you feel justified, and I just took an idol out of your life and you're ticked off. You know? You got life out of the fact that it, it's fun to hate these people, man. I mean, wow, it's, it's fun to bash them and to talk about them and to judge them and to know that you're not like that. And all Jesus is saying is slow down, Nilly, because let's first talk about the other 10,000, 100,000 things that is in your life that is going to separate you as far from God as theirs. And if you want to play this game, it's going to cut both ways. The rock you throw is the rock that's going to come back on you. And you want to talk about moral relativism. I'll tell you what moral relativism is. You know, you know that, that all morality is relative. What's relative is when people come up with their own private sin list and feel good about the fact that they, they, they attain them and judge other people who, do, who don't attain them. Because the whole moral thinking here is relative to their own preferences and it's self-serving. You want to take morality seriously. You want to deal with moral absolutes. Here's the absolute. God is perfect. Be perfect. That's dealing with moral absolutes. And it's not the, the view that says we can't judge others that doesn't take sin seriously. It's a view that, that, that deludes itself into thinking that you can judge others that isn't taking sin seriously. Because if you take sin seriously, buddy, you know what you're going to find? You are as much a sinner as they are. And saying, at least I don't sin, those kind of sins are going to do absolutely no good on the judgment day. Confess, give up the game, throw your hands up in the air and cry out to the mercy of God. Because that's the only hope any of us have ever got. Amen. And see, this doesn't, mean that, this doesn't mean that we don't ever speak into people's lives. And I may deal with this a little bit more next week. It doesn't mean that we never have a place to speak into people's lives when they invite us in, when they're ready for that. There's a place where we, we help each other aspire towards perfection. That really is the goal. There's a place for that. And there's a place where, we, where sometimes you have to, for the good of the whole, do an intervention and, and, and stop things from happening. But what it does mean is this. The attitude on the part of believers, the attitude on the part of all Christians has got to be this. You've been saved by an outrageous mercy without which you would be totally lost. And when we look at each other and when we look at other people in the world, our eyes have got to be one of absolute mercy. It doesn't condone what's going on any more than you should condone what's going on in your life. You know, people often say, we got to hate, we, we should have a holy hatred towards sin. Wonderful. Apply it to yourself first. And maybe in 17 lifetimes you'll get around to being able to apply it to somebody else. Yes, you should hate the sin. Let God grow you out of it. 
But the attitude towards others has got to be one of absolute love and absolute mercy. Not condoning, but it's mercy. It's mercy. Because mercy you have received. It's mercy that transforms you. It's mercy that you must dispense. Praise God. And that is the opposite of having anything like a holiness club. It's a mercy club where, where, where God is transforming us by His grace. And we extend mercy to one another. It means that we utterly give up the job description of finding and removing specks in other people's lives. And do you know how freeing that is? It is so freeing. God, the, the most significant thing God's done for me in the last two years, I was telling my wife about this earlier, is, that, is, is on this. It's so freeing to not have the commentary in the head of, of uh, evaluating the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, always just picking fruit up there. Look at that, look at that. Oh, this person, that. Oh, that person, that, whatever. I catch myself doing that. And then as soon as I'm, I, I got my mind trained now by, that, by God's grace. I'm not saying, like, look how righteous I am, everybody. <laughs> I've got my mind trained. But, but, but the Lord is, this can happen where you catch yourself, and then, then you just turn into a blessing. Lord God, bless that person. You love them. You died for them. I don't know anything about their life, Lord God, but I just pray that you bless them. And man, it's so, it's so much work to keep the judgment thing going. To be freed from that is so liberating. Liberating, and it fills you with this love for, for all people. Here's what the church is, is called to be. The church is not a holy club. It's called to be a people who are keenly aware of their failings, who accept God's outrageous mercy, who are being transformed by His outrageous grace, and who extend this same outrageous mercy and grace to one another and to all people. That's what I want Woodland Hills Church to be. A church is a community, the church is a community where outrageous mercy flows. Outrageous. Outrageous. Uh, just utterly mind-boggling, outrageous mercy. Praise God. When we so, we're going to turn our, head, our minds to, to communion now. And communion is, is where we, we, we think about, we meditate about what Jesus did to make all of this true. It's for all believers. So the first thing I want to do here in one minute is just, just this. I'd like everyone to close their eyes and begin to pray. And I want to ask this question. I want to give everybody a chance to take communion with us by becoming a believer. Now, I'm not asking, have you gone to church? Are you a relatively good person as opposed to a bad person or, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know from this message, I pray, that you are in and of yourself a lost sinner. I don't care how good you are. And the question I want to ask you is this. Are you willing to confess that and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And that's about a decision you make in your heart. And if that's what you want to do right now, would you just raise your hand? And we're all going to pray with you a prayer. Thank you. All over the place. Amen. 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 Wonderful. Just raise your hand very quickly so I can see it. Okay, in the back there. Praise God. You, you, you know you can't do it on your own. You're lost. It's a hopeless situation. Surrender. Surrender over there. Thank you, brother. I see the hand. Surrender. Amen. Over back there. Here in the middle. Thank you, brother. Thank you. God is so delighted in this. He paid an infinite price for this. This is how bad he wants it. Anybody else? This is the time. You're just saying, I really know that I need Jesus Christ. Back there, in the back. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Anybody else? You just surrender. Give up. Two over here. Praise God, you guys. This is it's so easy. Amen. Another one right next to you. That is just wonderful. God is just dancing in the jig right now. Back there. Wonderful. We just love this. This is what it's about. You know that you can't do it on your own. Plead the mercy. And it's available to you. I'm going to lead us in a prayer right now. And um, uh, th- those who raise your hand, pray this like I'm leading you in a wedding vow. Pray it from your heart. I'll lead you in it. We're going to pray it with you as a source of support, but also because it's true of our own life. The prayer is simply this. Heavenly Father,
I confess that you are creator, that you are holy, and that you are God. And I confess that I am a sinner, undeserving of your love, who has not walked in your ways. But I believe that you love me anyways, and that you send Jesus to die for my sin. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Wash me and make me whole. And I ask you, Lord, to live in me and to change me and to help me live for God the rest of my life. I surrender everything over to you. Amen. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome to you are recipients of God's mercy. Amen. Receive it. Receive it. Amen. I want to encourage those who raised your hands. There's about 25 people, as far as I could tell, uh, who raised your hand. At the end of the service, in the back of the auditorium, we have some information that we put together that can really help you get started in the Christian walk, and you really need it. So please take a moment after the service to stop by there. I want to take a, a second. We're now going to go into celebrating communion, and I want to invite all those who raised your hands and everybody who's a believer to join with us in this. Uh, I don't care if you've been a believer for 19 seconds now or whether you've been a believer for 190 years. You're invited to join with us in taking communion. I don't care if you're Catholic. I don't care if you're Episcopalian or Methodist or, or even Baptist. You know, you're, 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 it's okay to join with us on this. The flavor is not important. But this is a time where we're going to uh, center in and focus on what the Lord has done for us. And as we take the bread that was broken and as we drink the cup, hold on to it until Alan, one of our overseers, will lead us in this. But be aware of two things. Number one, how outrageous your sin is that would require the Lord to go to this extent to save us. Amen. And then, that doesn't shame you. Rather, it moves you to the second step, which is the recognition of how radically outrageous His grace is that would lead Him to offer this kind of a solution. And let's ask the Lord to deepen our appreciation of both things during this communion time. Let's worship the Lord. Yeah. 
prayed after giving thanks. He took the bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. The focal word that I'd like to kind of hone in on is remembrance. Remembrance is to recall an event, a person, or place. And Jesus here is pretty specific about in remembrance of me. So as we're preparing for the cup, take time to indwell in the remembrance of our Redeemer, who was, is, and forevermore shall be.
stand on the truth of what God has done for us, what we mean to Him, and what He means to us. Yes, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. For your mercy, Lord, for your blessing. for any human being to make up. And it just fits. It's the one hope that the human soul has. We're going to now move into a time of, of worship. And uh, we've been worshiping, but a different kind of worship here. And uh, uh, we're going to start by taking up an offering. Uh, and, you know, I, I got a picture of this last night. It was just this. Do you remember some of you older parents know this? Around Christmas time, you give your child maybe $5 and then taking them out Christmas shopping so they can buy you a present with that money. And however, and sometimes they want to keep some, you know, but <laughs> like for themselves. But you just want them to 
you could have bought it yourself, of course, but you want them to uh, share the joy of Christmas, to feel like they're contributing something, uh, and, and to really learn how to, to do that. Well, you know, everything, we're just like little kids that God gives $5 to. And uh, he could do it all himself, but he wants us to have the joy of participating in the work that he's doing here in this world. And so he just asks that we give back a portion, however we feel led, to, to him to see the work of the Lord go forward. And so this also is an act of worship. You're ascribing worth to God by um, uh, the value you put on the things that you have. And so I encourage you, as we worship the Lord now, continue to sing and praise God and focus on Him and just be obedient to the Lord in giving back to Him a portion of what He has given to us. And after this, then, we'll stand and rise, and we're actually going to have some time where you can come forward for prayer. Uh, but we'll tell you about that afterwards.